Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 576, with Anthony Pilicapo. The industry is never going to change if you leave it to the incumbent. So if if all if all you do is complain about the state of affairs and you don't actually go and try and fix it yourself, it will literally never change. The incumbents change because they're responding to what upstarts are doing. And so upstarts actually pushing the envelope and trying different things is actually how the industry will change and evolve over time. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Introducing Ethics Suite, the first and only misconduct, theft, and fraud reporting platform exclusively for the restaurant industry. Check out restaurantethics.com to see how restaurant employees can report any concerns anonymously, easily, and securely from any device with internet connection. However, if you're an owner or manager, you should check out ethicssuite.com slash restaurantunstoppable for more information on how you can monitor and respond to these reports and stay informed about issues that could affect your business and your reputation one more time that's ethicssuite.com slash restaurants unstoppable cash flow it's something every small business is worried about and it's hard to know at any given moment how you're doing and worse it's virtually impossible to predict the future until now welcome to cashflowtool.com the ultimate companion for any small business using quickbooks cashflowtool.com gives you instant visibility on any device anywhere of your cash flow and it also alerts for unexpected expenses on top of all this it analyzes your past finances and projects how much money your company will have tomorrow next week and next month Go to www.cashflowtool.com slash unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and receive pro features at the essential features price. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Anthony Piliacampo. Anthony, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? I'm feeling completely unstoppable today. (laughs) Yes. So graduate of the University of Colorado, Boulder, entrepreneur, health enthusiast, and engineer who likes to build businesses that make the world a more interesting, sustainable place, Anthony Piliacampo is the founder and co-CEO of Modern Market. Modern Market opened its doors in 2009 with a mission to serve delicious, healthy food that moves us forward. Since its first location almost 10 years ago, Modern Market has scaled to 28 locations in five states with many more in development. I can't wait to dive into your story to find out how you got to where you are today, what knowledge you have, but let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? So we sign off a lot of emails internally at the company with the phrase onward and upward. And, you know, we're a, we're an eatery that's about food that moves you forward and onward and upward to us signifies that no matter where we are at any given point, we want to move on from there. And we also want to move upward. We want to grow. We want to get better. And I think everything that we've done since day one has been about moving onward and moving upward. Yeah. It's so important to, I think, establish that culture of there is no status quo. It's only better than we were yesterday. Right. And that and setting that that mentality from day one and, and echoing it all the time must be so important. It does. And I, you know, I, I always refer back to the Jeff Bezos quote about day one. You know, he always talks about Amazon, if you read their shareholder letter, they talk about it's still day one within Amazon, which just signifies that they have so much more to do and accomplish. And I think we feel that same way at Modern Market. And the truth is, when you start to slow down, when you think you've got it just right, and you start to rest on your laurels, that's when 
your competition, everybody starts seeing. Because you set the standard, and they're looking to surpass that standard. So you have to beat yourself. If you don't, somebody else will. Absolutely. I it's a it. dog-eat-dog industry. Yeah. Great way to get this thing started. So where does it all start for you? Because you have a really interesting backstory. You didn't just dive like straight into the industry at a young age. You kind of were doing other stuff. You um, Take the story. like or just Sure. You know, what were you doing after college? Um, so I graduated the University of Colorado with a degree in mechanical engineering. And I worked for a large multinational design firm called IDEO. And, you know, IDEO really is a, the McKinsey of innovation. So companies hire IDEO to create what's next for them. And I was really fortunate while I was there to work with smart people and on cool projects for giant companies. And uh, McDonald's actually happened to be one of the clients um, that IDEO had. And I found McDonald's very interesting because I was no longer a consumer of McDonald's. I think like most children raised in the 80s, I ate a lot of it as a kid. Yeah. And then as I got older, wasn't really a fit for me and uh, did not frequent the establishment very much. But I was fascinated because it's this gigantic company and so I just wanted to figure out how it worked. And so I got to do a series of projects for McDonald's and see McDonald's actually um, at a very high level all around the world. And I became fascinated with this idea that when you were in China, for example, when they talk about the westernization of China, really what does westernization mean? If you peel it back, what I was observing was it's a lot of the western consumer brands are kind of front and center. And what brands are more front and center in another country than our box restaurants, right? Yeah. If, if you have Coke on the shelf, you have to be in the grocery store. If there's a McDonald's in the corner, you see it every day when you're going to work. And I was a little bit disenchanted that the best American export that we were shipping around the world was this food that was not designed to be eaten every day, yet it was. And you were seeing, you know, the the effects of that on the Chinese population or the Japanese population or wherever, pick your country. And I just looked at that and said, gosh, McDonald's spends all this energy making food that is not great for you. And as an engineer, I looked at it as a systems problem that, you know, if you can do all this work to make a burger in 90 seconds. Maybe you can do the same amount of work and make food that people want to eat, still craveable, but actually makes them feel good. And, you know, whereas I, you know, at the time that documentary Supersize Me was out, you eat McDonald's all the time and it almost kills you. And I wanted to make something. I just had this idea that, aha, that, oh, wow, what, what if you had a restaurant that was the inverse of that, where if mm. you actually ate it all the time at the end of the 30 days, 60 days, whatever, everything about you improved, your energy level, your, um, you know, your digestion, your weight, like all these different metrics, they all improved. It was, it was kind of the anti-current fast food establishment. And, you know, the engineer in me looked at that and said, oh, this is a, this is a problem worth solving. But I knew yeah. nothing about restaurants. So what's really interesting, typically during this portion of the conversation, I'm, I'm asking how people got into the industry, what restaurants they were working at, uh, who their mentors were, and what they were learning from these mentors. But you have a, like a really unique uh, pathway into this industry where you got to study some of the most successful brands out there uh, from like an aerial view to get in to see their systems. I mean, in a sense, that's kind of how you broke into this industry was through engineer work that you were doing, uh, looking at the systems and being able to, to dissect McDonald's from I think, like an aerial yeah, view. Yeah, I mean, I think we it's important to know we did not learn very much about restaurants from my time with McDonald's. <laughs> okay. We learned more of the, it was very, it was like Uber. It wasn't a 10,000 foot view. It was a hundred thousand foot view. So that was my next question. Like what did you learn from what experience? I, what I learned was the reason McDonald's was so successful is because it's attractive to money. And so McDonald's, as it was described to me by someone internally is a little ATM machine that you can replicate around $2 million, you know, for rough numbers, $2 million falls in the top. There's a 20% operating margin and 400,000 in free cash flow falls out the bottom and it costs $2 million to build. 
if you have those economics, there's an unlimited supply of money that you can use to fund growth of the concept. And it became apparent to me that the reason why terrible food was scaling so rapidly throughout the world is because the economics supported it. And I made it my kind of mission to understand how could you make why how could you make an economic model that worked that was as successful as McDonald's but served the food people should be eating because mm. I looked at it as capital is agnostic it, money doesn't the, the investor doesn't care if you're serving burgers or fries the investor cares how much money are you making me right yeah. and so I viewed it as the reason why healthy food had not succeeded was that nobody had figured out how to make the margins it. weren't there well it just you have to make the business attractive to capital yeah. it takes you have to takes money to build a restaurant right and yeah. so if you can make that business attractive to capital and if it's equally as attractive to capital as McDonald's I felt like you could be very successful and mm-hmm. that's what I that's that's the way we came at the problem we definitely didn't come at it which I means you could talk about for hours maybe wasn't the smartest way to do it but we definitely didn't come at it from from the restaurant perspective it was more of the opportunity perspective and that we looked at it as there was this you know 800 billion dollar industry and it nobody had figured out how to make it you know have a niche within it that was better for you focused and have that niche have the economics that the terrible for you had yeah. and we thought that was if we, we feared that could be our competitive moat yeah. if we could figure that out other people we didn't see anybody doing that so what exactly were you doing for mcdonald's i'm curious what engineer work were you doing um i was more of a designer on a project so one of the projects we did was the future of food and so we got to travel all around the world and um see mcdonald's in a bunch of countries and we were actually looking for innovation within mcdonald's system that could be brought back um centralized um back into the u.s and then spread out and you know for me though what i really learned from it was I observed food throughout the world and I observed consumers and I I got a very good understanding of this idea that I saw where the puck was going and it was that healthy food was going to be more important at some point in the future. I didn't know exactly where, but I could see the negative impacts of food like what McDonald's was serving at the time and a lot of other fast food QSR concepts. I could see that they were negatively impacting the health of the population. Concurrently, I was actually doing a bunch of work um, for medical companies around type 2 diabetes, some other projects I was working on. And so I saw a lot of the negative impacts of you know terrible diets with type 2 diabetes. Yeah. And I just observed that you know, health trend is going like this, and at some point those people are going to have to eat better food. And if there's no option for them in dining, that's a huge opportunity. And you know if you have type 2 diabetes, is a great example. What restaurant do you go to where you can order anything off the menu and not be concerned that it's going to make your condition worse? Yeah. The answer is none. (laughs) Yeah. So we kind of already identified earlier that your mission was to find a way to do healthy, but to make that uh, attractive to capital, right? So what was your solution? How how are you going? What was your plan, your strategy to make healthy attracted to capital? How did you see yourself doing that? It really was around detailed organization of the business. It, you know, it there was a bit of hubris involved. We thought that we could just figure this out. Um, to be honest, we did not at first have an exact plan for how to do it. We just said, oh, it's, you know, of course you can do it. Like making a salad is not that hard. You know, making, uh, you know, a bowl of something is not that hard. Um, and, I, and we were really focused actually on making things from scratch. And so, you know, our observation was a lot of the processing that goes into the food brought into restaurants is where a lot of the bad things happen. And so if you could do a lot more things within the restaurant, that would improve your odds of the food being healthy at the 
expense of labor, though. Like, I mean, I'm sure these are things that you started to figure out as you started going. We did. And I think that as we looked at the problem, you know, <laughs> we, you don't know what you don't know. And yeah. uh, it, I think we thought that the labor challenges would be easier to resolve. And, I, you know, on the McDonald's work, another project I did for them was around lean manufacturing. So we were looking at how do you manufacture the food more efficiently within a McDonald's kitchen? As an engineer, I had worked on those types of projects before, process engineering. Yeah. It was not that complicated for me relative to working on you know, consumer products manufacturing. And I just looked at it as a manufacturing problem and said, well, if we're trying to manufacture this type of product, what are the steps involved? How's the supply chain work? How do the pieces come together? And we, I think the original idea wasn't actually that far off. We had some ideas on, I mean, if you make things from scratch, you're taking labor away from a factory that's doing things outside the restaurant, you're putting it into the restaurant. And so then if you do that in an organized way, um, you can potentially be more efficient doing it in the restaurant. I think the thing that made us different than the typical person diving headlong into the restaurant industry is we did an absolute ton of research and I think really had a good understanding of what success looked like numerically for various restaurant concepts. So we read every case study that had ever been printed on restaurants. We did, um, you know, we talked to as many operators as we could. And I think we really understand, you know, what do you need to make a restaurant successful numerically? And then we worked backwards from that. And that really informed kind of what the final product looked like for the original restaurant and what the final kind of production system looked like. And, you know, everything that we had designed going in, it all seemed great. Then we opened our doors and it didn't work at all. Um, so, so when did this, <laughs> this concept, when did you really start like moving towards making this a reality? Sure. So I had, uh, in 2005, I left IDEO and I started a small design consulting firm on my own called Venture Design Works. Um, I did that for two and a half years, three years almost. And um, then I sold that. And the whole time that I was doing that, I kept getting more and more obsessed with modern market. That's when I did a lot of the research on just other restaurants, read a bunch of case studies, just really tried to understand. Because I had the idea actually arose in the midst of the McDonald's projects. So that was like 2002 that was like 2003. to 2003, yeah. 2004. Yeah, yeah. So, you, so, so the seed was planted in the early 2000s yep. and you started making taking action uh 2005 2006 yeah well yeah so i so i started doing my research then i sold my other company in 2007 and decided i was going to focus on modern market that was you know i was had already been an entrepreneur i was not going to go back and just get a job yeah you kind of uh, alluded to it earlier you were talking about the the different variables that made uh mcdonald's successful talking about the margins just the 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 cost of goods sold, right? Like the prime cost, there's just huge margins there. But the other variable too, uh, is the cost of labor is so low with McDonald's because they make it really simple in house to do things, right? You don't need a skilled person. So was, were these variables that were kind of coming into your head too? (laughs) Um, I think we assumed the skill of what we were trying to do was not that hard. Uh, You know, I think, and that was the hubris of not having worked in the, in, in a restaurant ever. You know, I observed restaurants, but I'd never worked in one. And so we had this idea for how hard things would be. And we were looking at it through the lens of our perception of difficulty, not through the lens of perception of a business that's open 365 days a year for 12 hours a day. You know, that's a totally different set of variables. Well, I think you did a lot of things right. You started with the end in mind, like you said, like, what's it going to take? And you worked backwards from there. I think that's a a great way to start any project. Uh, What were the benefits from starting like that? Um, I think that you know, we, we never looked at this as we were starting a restaurant. We really didn't. We were building a company and I'd already had a company and had success with that. And I just looked at it. And I think all companies are like this, to be honest, is that 
if you're building a business and a business has to make money, we had a plan for how we were going to make money. And we raised money on the idea that we were building this platform that was going to be much bigger than one restaurant. We told all our initial investors, if all we build is one restaurant, no matter how successful it is, that's a failure to us. We were trying to build a restaurant chain and you know an empire, really, um, because we thought that that was the way to impact the most change. Now, if you have one restaurant, if this restaurant we're sitting in was the only restaurant we had, this is a beautiful restaurant. We serve a lot of guests, you know, probably six, seven hundred covers a day. Um, that's only six or seven hundred covers a day. We wanted to serve six million people a day. We mm-hmm. wanted to serve enough people that we were actually influencing the supply, the meta supply chains of the industry, and actually moving the needle because it. I think most people that are that we've met in the restaurant space and that come from the restaurant industry, they, they have a very narrow perspective of what they're trying to do. We just had a much broader goal in mind. Like we, so you're thinking big on day one and day, day minus a hundred you know, day, <laughs> day minus five years, literally. Yeah. Like we always looked at this as an opportunity to build a scaled company that was nationwide. Yeah. Because to us, that's the only way you could ever get to the finish line of having the best quality food at lower prices. You know, you need scale from your question on supply chain. As we researched the supply chain, our observation was it was supply and demand. The reason why there wasn't hormone and antibiotic chicken in 2005 in really any restaurants in the U.S. was because there had been no demand for it. And so we viewed the business as the way to generate the demand. And if you generate the demand, the suppliers are going to step up and supply it as soon as suppliers start making an outsized profit because of something, another supplier comes into the market Couples. and then that lowers the price, right? Yeah. And we wanted to create a big as, a business that was big enough that it helped drive down those prices over time. And, you know, because to us, that's how you solve the problem of getting people to eat better. By increasing demand. Yeah, increasing demand. And, and then increasing demand inevitably is going to allow the price to come in over time. So you said you had a strategy to be profitable. Was this part of your strategy to be profitable? It was part of the long-term plan on why, if we became uber successful, it would all work. This was your why. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think it, was, it wasn't thought out as this is what's going to make restaurant number one succeed. I think you know, we kind of went in knowing that the, the reason we liked the restaurant industry, to be perfectly honest, was that even though we never worked in it, our observation was it's, success is possible through grit and effort. And both my partner and I are very grif- gritty people. And so you know, we have no we didn't mind working 18 hours a day for the first six months. Like we went in knowing that that was going to be the case. And um, I think that's what enabled us to succeed because we looked at it as, well, you know, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. You really just have to work harder than the other guy. We knew we could do that. And we knew that the idea was directionally accurate. We had a hundred percent confidence that directionally higher quality, healthier food was where things needed to go. We didn't know exactly how to get there. And we told our investors that. We were really honest, but we said, look, we're smart guys. We've succeeded in everything we've ever done. And we would commit to you that we will work ourselves to death to make sure that this has the best shake possible. You're bringing up a really interesting angle right now, too. A lot of, I mean, if I were to sit down and have a conversation with somebody and they were to ask me, hey, how do I raise money to open a restaurant? I say, hey, go work 10 years in the industry for the most successful people, tie your brand to them become a person of value so banks will want to invest in you, right? You don't just go asking for money and not being a person of value. Go become a person of value. You take what I said and you kind of turn like you, 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 you we know, did it the complete, complete opposite, opposite way, <laughs> but there, there has to be a lesson because that isn't the only, the way I just shared isn't the only way. Sure. Obviously you just did it on your own. Um, but what advice do you have for somebody who might be trying to circumnavigate the 10-year process yeah. to fast-track uh, getting capital, you know, getting the capital and getting uh, supported? 
You know, I think that the reason we were we raised money should be noted in the midst of 2008 was when we were actually raising money. And I can tell you with certainty that was the worst time ever to be raising money for a restaurant and having no experience. I mean, we were literally going around being like, we want to build the next Chipotle. And people are like, are you crazy? The world's going to end in three months, <laughs> you know, and so from a financial perspective. Yeah. And so it was a very tough pitch. And I think more than anything, we just we committed that that's what we were going to do. And we didn't stop. We thought it would take us three months to raise money. It took 18 and wow. roughly. Um, and we committed that we were just going to keep calling people until we found enough money to do it. Like so it was, the people that did say yes, how did that transaction go versus the people that said no? I mean, it was as simple as some said some said yes. The vast majority said no. Um, you know, <laughs> so it, just keep showing up. Yeah, you just keep showing up. I mean, the number of meetings we had was just countless. Yeah. And, you know, we were having meetings with we would meet an inve- a potential investor because our call list was mostly former colleagues. So we started there and then we kind of networked from them. You know, they'd say no. And then as soon as someone said no, you say, well, that's great. You don't want to do it. Do you know anyone else we should talk to? And it was stunning how many people were like, there's no way in heck I would invest in this. But why don't you call my friend Bob? Like, he, he's an idiot. He invests in things like this, right? Yeah. And so then we call Bob. And Bob's like, uh, you know, I'll give you $10,000. Why don't you talk to my friend Rick? And then, you know, you call Rick. And Rick gives you $20,000. And, you know, it was amazing how it kind of came together like that. Yeah, but um, there's a lesson there. I think that lesson is people of the same feather tend to flock together, right? Sure. So if you find... Oh, s- investors are herd animals. Exactly. I mean, so if you get, if you can find a vein and you can tap into a vein, a community of people who like to invest in these types of projects, just ask, just, just collect data, talk to people, right? And I think the thing that we made up for, while we had a lack of experience, I think most people we were talking to recognized we we clearly had done more research than anybody they had ever talked to about a restaurant. Yeah. So they maybe had seen and been pitched restaurants many times in the past. And then we roll in and again, we we were coming at the idea totally differently. And it was, we really were telling people you're not investing. And even the way we structured the investment, you weren't investing in a singular restaurant. You were investing in a brand. We were going to build a brand that would be representative of better for you food for the next 30 years. Yeah. That's what we were trying to build. And that's actually a different investment pitch. I mean, I get pitched restaurants left and right from various folks and that that's their pitches are nothing like what you know we're pitching it's not like we were like oh we're a farm to table restaurant that's going on this corner and you know we're going to serve this food it, it wasn't that at all it was much more you know we think the puck is going over here we're two guys who are going to work really hard to figure out how to make a business that fits that thesis and um, you know that's what we were shooting for. You did something that uh, comes up a lot in the, in the show, and it says people say all the time: just treat your small business like it is a big business, right? No matter the size of your business, if, if you approach uh, investors with the mentality that you're operating like a big business, and you put you take the time to, to you know cross your t's and dot your i's, and you have your shit together, they're going to take you much more seriously. And that's kind of sounds like how you approach these people. Like you had your stuff together. We did. It was and, all packaged up. And uh, I mean, actually, it's ironic. We were telling someone this yesterday. We actually won a business plan competition and won twenty thousand nice. dollars at one point. And I, we were we were just really good at that part of things, right? We had a very polished presentation, a very polished deck. Our first landlord, actually, we found out on our opening day, it was a really large, one of the largest landlords in the Western U.S., their VP of ops or whatever came in on our opening day. And he's like, what number is this for you guys? And we're like, number one. And the blood like drained out of his face because he thought this was like our 50th location because everything looked and we just, we felt like a real company and it's yeah. like fake it till you make it, right? Yeah. And uh, we, I think we put on a really good game face for people and, you know, we were we were confident in what we were doing and that being said, we opened the doors and honestly, very rapidly, 
became apparent we had no idea how to run a restaurant, but you know we we figured that out. Too. I think there's pros and cons to that, though. I, you know, you look at somebody like Nick Kakanis, right? Who uh, from the Alinea Restaurant Group out of Chicago, who was like a mathematician. Like uh, I can't remember exactly what he did, but it was right. something to do with like investments and stocks and he, he did really well for himself and then he got into the restaurant business but he had uh, a different type of mind right and he t- he looked at an industry kind of like you with a background in engineering where you're not looking at what you were taught by the people that operated restaurants before you and they they taught you how to operate restaurants you did it from a clean slate you looked at it from with no influences of saying this makes the most sense right i'm, I'm kind of uh, making assumptions right yeah. now but is it safe to say that you kind of didn't let maybe some of the bad habits or the more inefficient ways to operate a restaurant influence you. So you kind of, yes, that is accurate. Although we also didn't have any of the common sense that you would have pros and cons had from working <laughs> yeah. in a restaurant. I mean, you know, for example, we wanted to make everything from scratch, not having worked in restaurants. We assumed that meant that at the end of every night, you threw every single item away that was left over into the trash. And the next day you pulled out the cobs of corn and started cutting corn off the ear again. And it was on our you know second or third week where Someone that worked for us was like, guys, the corn will stay overnight, you know, and <laughs> yeah. it's like, oh, well, there's a three hour labor saving. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, I mean, we really did start on the bottom rung of the ladder in that regard. But, you know, I mean, it's the, the re- restaurants have very low barrier to entry and they're also it's not that complicated of a business. I mean, I I worked on some engineering projects that were so complicated, your brain hurt at the end of the day. And that never really happens to the least what I've observed within restaurants. The problems aren't that complicated to solve. Yeah. But if you're good at blocking and tackling and you're an organized person and you can kind of look at things objectively and you can look at the data and make d- decisions on it, I think you can keep a restaurant going. I think the whole thing about restaurants having such a high failure rate is only a function of the no barrier to entry. If you put any sort of barrier to entry in restaurants, which actually franchise restaurants have a you know 88% success rate or something like that, I've heard. And it's just a function of there's a little bit of a hurdle there you have to clear. So if you put a little bit of a hurdle there, they actually the business, I don't think, is that hard to make succeed in one or two locations. But actually, I, our observation is that it becomes exponentially harder as you scale because um, then, you, then you have to be good at running a business and running a restaurant. Let's get into that scaling point. Uh, I, I think that the, there's going to be a ton of great lessons there, but let's stay chronological. Take it to the point where you you get the capital. Now, you, you kind of already you're, you're dancing around what it was like, uh, all the things you're learning as you're opening, but really take us through the first couple of weeks. And I've, You mentioned something that I, I really would like to dive deeper into is blocking and tackling, right? And that approach, why you took that approach, and just maybe sure. draw some lessons on us there. So, when we opened, because we had never worked in a restaurant, we thought that um, it would be wise to hire a general manager and then we would be the assistant managers, my partner and I, and that's how we would kind of learn the ropes of running the business. So we did that. He hired the initial team and he was actually a great guy. And I think if he would interview at our restaurant, any of our restaurants today, he'd probably get hired. He was a great hire. Unfortunately, the concept was not thought out enough for him to be able to succeed. You know, what we do you mean were, by that? We had an idea and it became apparent on day one that a lot of our ideas weren't going to work. So things as simple as how we were queuing people through the line and you know how our food running was working and just our prep procedures and everything it 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 really put him at a disadvantage because there were no systems in place for him to follow you didn't set him up for success no not at all and so we parted ways after about a month because it just became apparent that we needed to be kind of doing everything just to figure out what should we be doing the next day and about two weeks in actually we (laughs) We did not understand that when you, if a landlord gives you a tenant improvement allowance, that you don't get that on the day you open. It takes about six months for the landlord to write you that check. 
and our check was pretty significant. And we act, we came close to running out of money because we had payroll that was due every two weeks. We, my partner and I drew one paycheck and then we're looking at the numbers for the next week and like, holy cow, we're not going to have enough money to make payroll next week because this tenant improvement check had not arrived. And so we each loaned the company kind of our last $10,000 that we, it was like our reserve money because we invested money in the business. And this is a huge lesson in itself too. Like don't go into opening a restaurant without a runway, without a cushion in the bank. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we, we really did not want to go to these investors who just made this huge bet on us and say, oh guys, we're two weeks in and we ran out of money. And so we each loaned the company our kind of last $10,000 and said, I remember clearly we sat down at a table <laughs> in the restaurant. We kind of mapped out, all right, here's where the numbers need to be for us to be making money. Mm-hmm. We're nowhere near that. And How far off were you? Oh my God. I mean, our, we were running at the time, just our labor percentage for reference was about 75% of sales. Wow. So you obviously can't succeed if you know 75 cents of every dollar is just going to labor. And we, I remember we had a meeting with the team and we were like, labor's got to get into the 30s. And the team was like, that's impossible because everything we were doing, I mean, that from the guest perspective, it was fine. Um, the I mean, it's cutting half then some of your labor. Yeah, right? and it was really because we had no processes and systems on how to do all these complicated prep steps, really, that we had and way of producing the food. But, you know, we just we just kind of laid out a plan and said, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to schedule less. Here's our plan for ratcheting that down. And then we just started that that forced us to get creative on how we solved a lot of these problems. And we changed a few menu items and we um, actually, we changed a whole lot of things. I mean, if you so you started with the end in mind again, right? Yep. And you worked back. This is where we need to be. What can we do to make it happen? Exactly. And take us through that. Can you re- can you generalize or can you can you summarize specific things that you did to help get you to that goal? I think more than anything, you know, that was in October. That was in like late October 2009, and we had paid ourselves back in full. I think by March of 2010. So you know, there's a three or four months span there where we not only went from losing money, we went to making enough money that we could pay ourselves twenty thousand dollars back. And I think the main things that happened, to be honest, was we just learned how to run a restaurant. We learned how to schedule properly. We learned how to, you know, use the data to tell us where we were making mistakes. You know, we 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 rapidly figured out that, you know, we had had a chef help us do the initial menu. And we realized that some of his recipes were completely irrational. That the, you know, we were paying, you know, we had a pesto, I'll never forget this. We had a pesto that we were getting made for us. And we were paying, that pizza had like a 68% food cost. And it wasn't until we dove through the order guide in detail that we figured that out. And we're like, well, that's wrong. And so we found a different pesto. And we, you know, there's just all these little I mean, the restaurant is a sum of a thousand parts, right? There was no, there really was no one mega thing that we did. We just buckled down and said, we're going to figure this out. And yeah. honestly, because we had, there were two of us, I think it was infinitely more doable than had we, either one of us been alone in doing it because one of us could be working in the actual business and the other could be working on the business. Mm. And so we really took the time to step away from the day to day analyze the numbers and just say, okay, this is where there's problems. This is what's working. This is what's not. And, you know, ever since day one as well, we also have eaten our food as much or more than anybody else in the history of the industry has. So we, we always approach it from the guest perspective first. It's like, we have to be delivering this experience to the guest and this type of food. And, um, to be honest, if at the time our expectations were probably lower than much lower than they are today. Now that we've been in the industry for 10 years, I think we have significantly higher expectations on everything. But at the time, we had a fairly high expectation. And you know, so we said, well, we can't let that suffer. And so we were constantly doing this back and forth, checking and balancing of, well, we want to make this change, but 
well, I'm eating there every day. Am I going to notice that change as a guest in a negative way? And that's really what kept us, I think, from ever falling off the cliff is that, you know, we were working on the business from above. You know, I'd be managing the restaurant and Rob would be in the back on his laptop, you know, figuring out what changes we were going to make the next week. And we had no fear of change. I mean, Mm. if you would talk to folks who worked with us at the time, we would literally come in and be like, all right, guys, this process that we've been doing for, you know, since we opened, we're changing that completely. Here's the new process we made up at two in the morning and we're going to try that for a while. I love it. Uh, We did We did that for years. So you you mentioned a a few times how you use data to influence your decisions. What specific data did you have your thumb on? Like, was there a few variables that you're tracking the most to really help guide those decisions? Yeah. I mean, I think in restaurants, it's all about, um, you know, your, your throughput. So how much sales are you doing in 15, 15 minute increments? What's your labor, your prime cost, your throughput, your labor and your food cost. And we just paid a lot of attention to all of those details. And I think we benefited from, I think you could have given us any business and we probably could have been semi-successful at it. Like we were good enough managers that I think we could have made any business successful. And with a singular restaurant starting out, it's not that much data to pay attention to. It's not. And, you know, we just stayed on top of it. And again, you, I think you said it best. We knew where the end point was. We knew what we needed to get to to be successful. We had mapped it out on a plan ahead of time. To the target. Yeah, we really did. And, and we knew what it needed to do to be scalable. And we were so focused on making that happen probably to a fault to be honest um that we we were able just to kind of like track in towards that and we missed but we still got close to it and kept going i think the other really big variable here that played a huge impact on your success is the fact the fact that there was two of you partnerships and i think there maybe was a time where people were really against partnerships but i from what I've learned over the past five years interviewing people and how competitive the market's getting, I don't see it being impossible without a partnership because of the variables that you mentioned earlier. Like people get into lanes, like you can divide and conquer and alone you would have burnt out having to be on the floor every day, paying attention to, to managing people. Then at the end of the day, after you've cleaned the shop and done everything you have to do, go back and work on the business. I mean, you're looking at like 16 to 18 hours a day to be able to do that well. But with two of you, you can divide and conquer. You have one person working on the business and the other person working in the business. Do you want to reflect more on that partnership and what made it work? Sure. I, I you know my partner, Rob, uh, we've known each other since we were in high school. And I think more than anything we've benefited from having trust in the other person. So there was never a worry that if I was doing X and he was doing Y, we didn't have to come back and double check what the other person was doing. You know, we really had trust that, Hey, whatever you're working on, I trust you to do it and do it well. And I'm going to work on this thing over here and you trust me to do that and do it well. And then that allowed us to, you know, one plus one equaled three. Um, and we also went, you know, I'd had a business before and I, I had a partner on that. Um, and I, but I definitely carried a bit more of the load than I wanted to. And I didn't want to end up in a situation where I was working a hundred hours a week. I had done that before and, you know, I was getting into my late twenties and just was kind of looking ahead to getting married and hopefully starting a family. And my observation was that's not a sustainable path. Mm -hmm. And I thought that if, you know, we had two of us, um, you know, we could probably have a more reasonable work-life balance and, I tend to function a lot better if I'm not working a hundred hours a week. And I think most people do. And, uh, yeah, it just seemed, you know, Rob was one of the smartest people I'd ever known. He had never worked in a restaurant. Neither had I. And I thought that 
at least he was willing to work hard and shared the same goals and objectives as me. So yeah. as a partnership, we always, we both wanted the same thing, which was to build a large company. So some, sorry, that kind yeah. of short? No, go ahead. So some of the key variables to partnerships, you already kind of identified a couple of them. Trust, right? You know this person. This wasn't a new person in your life. You were childhood friends. What about the other key variables like strengths and weaknesses? Did you guys complement each other? Like where were your lanes? Where were his lanes? Yeah, I think that we we're very similar in a lot of ways, but where we differ is... Rob is definitely significantly more organized than I am. And, um, you know, if it, he's a better project manager than I am for sure. And we've leaned into that at times. And I definitely, I wouldn't say I'm the most creative person in the world, but I understand the creative process and I like the messiness of it. And so I'm kind of well suited to navigating that part of things. And that's enabled us to kind of find our lanes within the business. And actually, as it started out, we were both doing everything all the time. And, where there's a lot more crossover in our daily lives. As the business has scaled, you know, Rob focuses much more on the day-to-day operations and uh, people management. I focus much more on the brand development, um, culinary, um, uh, just development holistically, opening more units, that sort of thing. I think that's the organic pathway, though. Like, yeah. You just start, everybody's working on everything. Sure. As you go, you start to recognize who's better at what and lanes are formed. Right? Yeah, and, it's, and I mean, partnerships, <laughs> I think people don't appreciate how similar partnerships are to marriage and that they're hard, you know, they take work and, you know, we've had ebbs and flows in our relationship over time, but we've known each other for 25 years. And so there's never a doubt that the partnership's going to break up. You know, you have, you have a bad fight and you move on and you get past it. And I think that's really important. And I, we've observed a lot of other partnerships not work because people aren't willing to stick it out and they're not both committed to the same long-term goal. And I think Mm. that that is so important because why, so many things that we do even today we're planting seeds that aren't going to grow into trees for years and there is a lot between here and there and if we're both not committed to that it becomes really hard to trust the other person because then you're always worried about oh is this person just going to quit are they going to is it going to get too hard and they're going to walk away is it and you know we have a relationship where we both want the same thing in the end and we also are both committed to working in the business for the long term. And so there's really never been this conflict of like, well, I'm done with this. I want to go do something else now. And, you know, I think having that, the trust is a function of we know and are confident the other person has the same view and lens and timeline that, you know, we have, or like I have. And uh, that allows me to trust him that, well, he is going to be here in five years. So, you know what, we can disagree on this right now. And I actually think the most, the healthiest part of a partnership is the disagreement. I mean, Rob and I, if you talk to anyone that works at Modern Market, we disagree about a lot. (laughs) And that disagreement, I think it was one of the Wrigley brothers of Wrigley Gum said, if you have, uh, if two partners always agree, one of them is useless. (laughs) And, you know, I think that's really true in that there are so many decisions that if I was on my own, I'm, I would have just said, this is what I'm doing, made up my mind. But Rob would vehemently disagree and it caused me to really have to support my view. And in the process of doing that, I'm like, oh, wow, maybe this isn't the best idea and vice versa. And so I think that that dynamic of a partnership, that's probably the most beneficial part is, you know, that he challenges me and I challenge him and it keeps you honest. And if you're trying to actually make sure that the partnership stays alive, it just forces you 
to compromise a bit. And I don't think compromise is bad. No, absolutely not. And I, you're reminding me of my, my career in aviation. I was a commercial pilot and we learned CRM. Yeah, I'm a pilot too. Yeah, so CRM, crew resource management, yeah, sure. right? Challenge response atmosphere. That's what the first officer is there to do, to challenge the captain. When he's flying into an approach to minimums, and you're continuing to go below minimums. The, the first officer is there to say, "Hey, what are you doing, yeah. knucklehead? Go around or go miss." Like, and you, you have to also set that 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 culture where it's okay to challenge one another and to know that you're not doing it to to attack that person, but to keep everybody in the back of the plane alive and the, and the you know the the plane from smashing into the ground. Right? Absolutely. Same thing with the business. Yeah. So. Um, you, you painted a really great picture of what things were like in the early days, but when did you start to get stability? When did you start to really start, you know, coming and cruising to the point where you could think about scaling? Um, this sounds crazy, but the third week we were open. So we were wow. still in the... So all these changes that you talked about before happened in three three-week period? No, I'm just saying in the third week we were open. So when all this craziness was going on and we were losing money hand over fist, I remember meeting with a real estate broker about a potential second location. Oh, man. So we literally were thinking about it. Even in the midst of all the chaos of the beginning, we just knew we'd figure it out. You know, it was failure really, we'd set ourselves up where failure wasn't an option. Yeah. So we just said, you know what, we're going to figure this out. Well, you know, we got to, the goal is to build a scaled business. Let's keep looking for good real estate. Yes. So- and, you know, we, I think it was about, it took about six months though, an answer, direct answer to your question, it took six months to get to a point where the business did not require either one of us in it for 15 you know, plus hours a day. And once we got to that point, it was like, okay, I don't remember exactly how it transpired, but I'm fairly certain we promoted somebody. Um, and then we started alternating who was in. And then, you know, we just, we, that's around the time we actually started finding the next lease and figuring all that out. And, you know, during all that time too, we were, we were constantly upgrading everything that we were doing. I mean, whether it was the back end accounting system or, you know, at one point we, hired a restaurant consultant to come in and tell us everything that we were doing wrong and the list was so long we literally just ignored it i'll never forget we had this like <laughs> 20 page list and we're like well shit we can't can't even make a dent in this so throw that away um you know it was just it was just this constant flurry of activity it was onward and upward you know we were so, trying to move ahead knowing what you know now reflecting back in that first six months what were the key things that you know to be true about what made you get to the point where you could remove yourself from the day-to-day we were fully committed to doing that. And that was the goal. We knew we couldn't do anything else with the business until that occurred. And so that became the all-consuming goal. It was like, we can't scale this thing if we're standing in the restaurant all the time. And we can't improve the business if we're standing behind the counter all the time. And you know, it's, I always say it's like the general doesn't run around the trenches. The general stands on top so we can see what's going on in the trench. And we had multiple conversations about how we would do that. And it really was, okay, you do these things. I'm going to do these things. You work on these days. I'll work on these days. And, you know, we just figured it out. And uh, I I wish there was a more elegant answer than that, but it, it really was as simple as mapping out our time and saying, these are the things that have to get fixed and changed. And then we need this much bandwidth of not being in the restaurant to focus on the next store and figuring all that stuff out. I think blocking in tackling comes back into this, right? And it's something you mentioned earlier, identifying the things that you're going to do, focus on those things until they're done and then focus on the next urgent thing, the thing that needs to happen next. Right. And to keep on doing that until those things that you've identified are now self-sustaining. Yeah. You don't need to be there. Um, How did you prioritize? 
I think we prioritize first and foremost on what, how could we make the guest experience better? Because we recognize that our biggest obstacle to getting out of the business was that we weren't making enough money in sales every week. And so we really were focused on doing things that grew sales. And then the next step down from that was running the business in an efficient enough manner that we could make money at whatever sales level, you know, we are presently at. And we had a lot of goals. I mean, I remember there was the like uh, $2,000 lunch goal of like, you know, we wanted to be at $2,000 in the register at 5 p.m. And there were a series of bottlenecks. We actually had enough guests to do it. The line was really long. We couldn't move them through fast enough. I mean, the challenge with our business was we were trying to make really complicated food very rapidly. And that took a while to figure out, you know, where the bottlenecks were. And, you know, it was like kind of, if you were working the line, you noticed some bottlenecks. You noticed a lot more if you were from a guest side watching what was going on in the open kitchen. And so we were just constantly making tweaks like that. And, um, you know, it was, it was very incremental. I mean, the neat thing about a restaurant is every day you start from zero again, right? And the, til- the register gets reset. And so every day you can make a change, come in the next day and execute it and see, well, did that actually increase our throughput in this 15-minute period? Or did that make it a little bit easier to run? Or, you know, we- and we were fortunate to be perfectly honest that that was a time in the economy where it was a little bit easier to hire folks into the restaurant than it is now and we had some really talented we're in a college town too yeah no we had some really intelligent college yeah we, we had some really smart people that were working line jobs for us that called us out on guys what you're doing is stupid and we were we were actually very receptive to that feedback we told everybody when we were hired our story and said look we've never worked in a restaurant I guarantee you, you're going to see a hundred things on day one that seem so dumb to you because you've never seen them done that way. That's awesome. Tell us so we yeah, don't do them again the next that's day. That's your cue. Yeah, that's your cue. <laughs> like, and I think that's actually something I'm really proud of is we definitely have a culture where pushback is encouraged and it has been since day one. And I, I would venture to guess at least 80% of all the things we've changed, which has been virtually every facet of the business since day one, 80% of those changes have been informed by our team members raising their hand and literally challenging the boss, right? Challenging Rob and I and saying, guys, I don't think this is working and here's why. And um, we were very, um, we tried very hard to always listen to that. And, you know, it's very easy, I think, to put your guard up and have your ego there and say, oh, you know, like I created this, you know, it's the, and we see this with chefs all the time where they, they have this huge ego and they, they, they want to be seen as the person that created it. We were creator agnostic. We didn't care if the janitor told us what to do. If we thought it was going to make the business better and the guest experience better, we're like, great, let's do that. Yeah. There's this analogy. I think it was from the, the great game of business where uh, the, the analogy, I think they used this analogy in that book, but think of every mind as being a battery, right? Potential energy. And when you only let two people make all the decisions and brainstorm, then you're, you're depriving yourself of all those other minds that are stored energy that is potential energy that you could tap into to solve your problems. If you have 15 people working for you, why not multiply your potential energy by 15 and tap into all those creative solutions? These people are working in your business. They're seeing it from different perspectives. Tap into that, that potential energy, that, that brainstorming power. Like you're, you're not doing yourself and your business any justice if you don't tap into that potential energy. Um, we agree completely. Yeah. So, um, Oh, man, there's so many different things we could talk about. So after six months, you said it took about six months to be to the point where you're, you're humming along, you're cruising. Uh, 
how did you scale the business and the culture? Because you already identified that one of the things you're most proud of is your culture. But how do you scale culture from one location to 28 locations? Has that been a challenge? Uh, it, yes. <laughs> um, you know, I think it, it, it comes in steps. I mean, you know, we didn't snap our fingers and wake up to where we are today. And so, you know, we had one location, then we opened two. And they were actually quite far apart. They were about a 40-minute drive apart. So it was not... It was not the sort of thing where you could easily bop between them multiple times a day. You know, you kind of were either at one or the other. And that forced us from the moment we opened the second one to be pretty good at managing it without, you know, necessarily being behind the line, um, you know, during the day. And pretty rapidly, actually, after the second one, we opened our third one. And three was, I always felt like three is the point where once you go beyond three, you better start having some systems in place or it's going to blow up on you at some point. Um, and we had observed that with other restaurants chains that we saw growing. And so, so we spent a lot of time figuring out how to, you know, we looked at a lot of 10 unit concepts and said, what systems do they have in place at 10 that seem working? And then we said, we're going to go ahead and build that into the business at store three. And we, we actually raised some more money and we said, Hey, we need to have these systems in place because we never wanted the back end. We always talked about the back end system as being like the utility and you don't really think about where the power comes to turn on the lights. If you start having to think about that, it becomes really hard to do anything. Yeah. And so we spent a lot of time on building that utility and that back-end you know, accounting and reporting infrastructure that larger restaurants have. We tried to build it when we were two or three units. Um, with, we did it with, limited, with some success. And that enabled us, I think, to spend more, more of our time than was spent on building that culture and developing that culture and culture is just a it's leadership right it's it's spending time with people letting them leading by example talking to them a lot letting them understand the why you're doing everything you're doing you know we always said from day one with everything we do there's a reason you might not like the reason you might not agree with it you might think it's crazy but there is a reason and so there's something to talk about on every aspect of what we do and we spend a lot of time talking about those things with people and you know we were unique in that if you came to work at Modern Market, it was way harder than working at Chipotle. Mm. I think actually one mistake we made is that we came at it thinking we were going to be uh, something more resembling Chipotle rather than something more resembling Houston's. And if you really look at what we're executing in the kitchen, especially at present day, it's you know Houston's light, not Chipotle extra. <laughs> um, and that was something that it actually took us a while to figure out. Um, we're still figuring that out. But early on, it was actually problematic because it was so hard. You know, we'd hire somebody from Chipotle or a restaurant like that. And they're like, oh, my God, like serving 500 people at Modern Market is like the most exhausting eight hours of my life. And you know, it's really hard to retain employees when things are that difficult. Mm. And so that really informed actually a lot of changes in the business over time. Is, you know, we knew it wasn't sustainable to make for the job to be that hard. And especially in a shrinking labor pool. Like, oh, my where, gosh. Yeah. The labor pool yeah. tied, you know, but. Yes, that, that's that's been a challenge we've dealt with continuously over the last ten years. So I think one or a couple of the big nuggets I pull from that riff you just went on first, uh, you know, explaining the why, right? Really, not just telling people do this because, but here's why we've come to this being the reason why this is the best way to do it. And if you have a better way, let us know, right? And then the other big piece about that was uh, removing yourself from a lot of the busy work by implementing technology, by using tools and resources like uh, some of my future. Uh, sponsors, Gusto would be an example, payroll, yeah, right? Sure. Why do all that stuff on your own when you can uh, 
insert a technology that was designed to make your life easier. Yeah, it might cost you 30 bucks a month, but how much time are you saving in that 30-day period? I'm sure it's more than you know, your time is more valuable than that 30 Absolutely. Day. So you got to think of it that way. Like what's your time worth? Where how can I remove myself from the busy work by leveraging technology and tools so I can focus on FaceTime with my my team, building those relationships like you talked about that was so important. I think um, it's also important that you know, when you talk about culture, especially when you're small, you have to do what you say. And I think the restaurant industry is rife with folks that have lots of big ideas. And then you come work in their restaurant for a few days and you realize everything they said is total BS. And Rob and I were very passionate about the fact that you know, we weren't re- experienced in the restaurant industry, but we did have control over what we said and then what we did. And so if, if you came to work for with us and we said, you know what, we do everything from scratch and there's nothing artificial in anything there was nothing artificial in the restaurant. It was stunning how many folks we hired that would tell us after their first week, we do, cause they always ask people, what's your biggest surprise? And you're like, wow, I can't believe we do everything from scratch. And I'm like, well, we told you that in your interview. And they're like, yeah, but everywhere tells you that. And then you come in and there's a big, you know, vat of xanthan gum that you're dumping in everything to keep it shelf stable. And, you know, we really, we really tried to be totally transparent and just say, guys, this is what we stand for. This is why we do it. This is how we do it. And then, they come in and that's exactly what was happening. So even though it was hard, there was this incredible buy-in that has happened and you still see it actually at you know 28 restaurants and five states later, we just hired a new um, uh, head of people and he was touring around our restaurants and his biggest observation in touring all 28 restaurants was that everywhere, every restaurant he went, he couldn't believe how passionate people were about the idea of what we are, which is food that moves you forward, food that's better for you. And he's like, I just haven't been in another restaurant that has this many locations where that was palpable in every yeah. location. And to me, that's the culture, right? Yeah. That's that underpinning that that's what's going to get somebody to run through a wall for us. I mean, and, you know, we, we started building that and really honestly caring about that from re- restaurant number one. Well, first of all, what, what you just described, right, of this idea of doing what you say you're going to do, right, that's integrity. Like that, like that is integrity. We, we throw these words around, but like having the integrity to do exactly what it is you say you're going to do will go so far with your people. I think the other thing that I think goes is, far with the guests too. Exactly. I mean, get, you, you poll guests. They don't trust restaurants. Yeah. And the other really cool thing about what you just said is the thought of ideas, right? Culture is an idea. All culture is, is agreed things that we agree upon to, to coexist with each other. Like, Absolutely. And they're all just ideas. Everything in culture is, is somebody's idea of what's right. So when you can communicate an idea and you can get everybody to buy into an idea of the purpose of why we're here, that is so powerful. Um, really dive into why that's so powerful. Well, I mean, you know, what are the first four letters of culture? It's cult. Right. And that, you know, what we're trying to build is a cult of health and a cult of wellness and a cult of people that believe that if I put this in my body, I'm going to be better in the future as a result. And that that idea is really sticky. And I think everybody knows on some level for it to be true. And the neat thing is we serve a product that it becomes self-evident. So if you eat our food and we say, hey, eat this, eat this bowl and you'll feel a food and you'll feel better in two hours than you feel right now. Then you eat the bowl and two hours later, you feel awesome and like want to go work out and you have all this energy. Then you're like, oh my gosh, what he said is true. And that's this neat, that's the neatest part about our business is that's what happens. Yes. You know, these people, we, we've had team members come in and our former head of real estate lost, I think he, he'd been the same weight his entire adult life. He was like six foot 175. He lost eight or nine pounds the first six months working with us. All that he did was eat meals at our restaurant because they were free. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't trying to do anything different, but he had all this energy. He was feeling great. And he's like, 
this is crazy. I made this healthy transformation and I didn't even realize I was doing anything. So of course he's totally bought into this is what everybody should be doing. And that's actually, I think how you, you know, that's the importance of that cult of culture, right? It's that you get these people that are so passionate, you know, and you know, our guests feel that when you come in, if the person, you know, you, you encounter at the register taking your order is just so passionate about the salmon and the why of the, you know, why do we use this specific salmon or why do we cook it the way we cook it? Or why do we put it on top of this ingredient or that you're going to, that's going to radiate onto you. And then we're going to pass that culture onto the guest. And then that's going to be the thing that hopefully gets them to remember us top of mind to come back in and, you know, eat our food more frequently. So I don't always get to do this, but today I got to come hang out for about an hour before I was detected uh, as being the guy that was coming to record the the podcast. And I got to experience the brand and I got to experience the food. It was delicious and the experience was great. But I also got to talk to your general manager. Um, Was it Megan? Is it Megan? Yeah. So I got to talk to her and I got to ask her a couple questions and I asked her what she liked working here about working here the most. And she said that hopefully she said me, but (laughs) which kind of in a way uh, she said that the, the thing that she likes working or she likes the most about working here is that she gets to, if she has an idea, she can, uh, come to you with an idea to change things and to feel like her voice is being heard. Whereas other places she'd worked, the, the, the way was set and there wasn't much you can do to influence the way of doing things. Whereas here she is able to have a voice and to uh, influence the operation and make change where she works. Why is that so important? Because we're not done. You know, I think that you said it earlier and that the industry's changing and it's really competitive and that we have to keep evolving along with it. And, you know, she's a great example of someone that she's in a very busy restaurant and has a set of problems in this restaurant because it's so busy that a lot of our other restaurants don't have. And we can't force on them one solution. There's a solution that works well for this restaurant. And a lot of the things she's observing might be useful in all our restaurants. And so we have to change and adapt to stay competitive in this environment. And it's the boots on the ground to, I think, have the best information and the best ideas for how to incrementally make it better Mm -hmm. and you know like i said before we've always listened to that you know we did it when we had one store we do it when we have 28 so you recently were uh you you weren't acquired but you have a new uh investor Investor. yep um you i think i read someplace that you have hopes to open another 100 locations in the next coming years uh do you see yourself being able to have that same culture where your general manager at one location can come up and deliver an idea and to execute those ideas across 128 sure. locations. How you know, do you see yourself think, being able to do that? I think that, the you know, you look at a company like Toyota and, you know, Toyota more or less invented lean manufacturing. And a big part of lean manufacturing is anyone on the production line can stop the line at any point. If they see a problem, they can stop the whole line and stop making cars, right? And if a company like Toyota can do that, 150 restaurants or 200 restaurants or whatever, we can do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody knows that the key is that people don't expect if they throw out an idea that you do anything with it. They expect that their voice is heard and they want to know that you're considering it. And we have done, I think, a, a good job of making sure that people, A, feel like they're being heard. And then we're very um, transparent on what our path forward looks like. And so if we have a series of changes coming... We talk a lot about where those changes originated from and we highlight people that maybe, you know, helped us come up with those ideas or help push that forward. And, yeah. you know, I think that it really is. I mean, we do a town hall, actually, um, a web a webcast uh, once a period. Um, and either it's my partner or I and anyone in the company can dial in and there's a 30 minute Q&A and people can 
ask, suggest, comment, whatever. And I think having those types of forums makes people feel heard. And yes. it's definitely not the case where, you know, even now it's like, it's not, you know, someone doesn't send, send an email to somebody on our restaurant support team and say, we need to change this. And it gets changed. Like we'd be completely disorganized and, you know, non-functional if that was the case. But what does happen is if somebody sees something and they bubble it up, they feel confident that it's going to be given an audience that's so going to be considered along with everything else that we're considering. And that, you know, if everybody's objectively looking at all the facts and thinks that's a good move, we'll make it, you know, again, there's not an ego here. It's an idea meritocracy. If a good idea bubbles up, we'll take it. Yeah. Now, you know, I ask these questions because I, I'm generally an optimist, but I do get a little pessimistic when it comes to being able to scale culture. I wonder how that's going to be done. And I'm more asking these questions because I want to learn because there's a lot of people like yourself that believe it can be done. Uh, and I'm really interested in th- those types of minds because I want to learn more from those minds because I, you know, it's, it's probably one of the hardest things to do if you're trying to scale a business is to scale the culture, right? And it's really interesting to get perspectives from people like you. And I think one thing that you're doing that is a great way to scale those cultures, it, like, before, 30 years ago, we couldn't be in all these places at once. But with technology, we can. We can broadcast a live feed to everybody. And we can have that presence in all these different places. So if you are scaling something, leverage technology. Try to use technology to be in all these places so you have that presence in multiple places at once, right? I think that's one thing you're doing. What I, else I, think, you doing? I think that's part of it i think though honestly the most important thing that you can do for scaling culture is just take the extra time to hire people that have the same values as you Mm -hmm. because if you don't have people that share your passion and your values there's no way that it's going to communicate it to somebody else and so you know we're very fortunate that we've got a fantastic have grown a fantastic team of people i mean it's disingenuous to say modern market is me it's far beyond me or rob or you know really any individual person it's it's much bigger than all of us and you know it's this collection of people that i think if you look at our restaurant support team there's a level of passion and commitment to what we're doing that is universal and you you could be interviewing i mean i could i could give you a list of 30 people you could interview that the interview would sound very similar to it if you were talking to me and that's what we look for right it's like if you have a team of people who all believe that healthy food is what the world needs and that this is the way kind of the right way to achieve it and this is what really good hospitality looks like and this is what you know really good um, restaurant economics look like and all these things that then drips onto everybody else because they might not be interacting with me but they're going to be interacting with somebody else and it's the same as if they're interacting with me because culturally we stand for the same things we have the same you know you said it for ideas you know if we're all agree and agreement on these ideas then the actions that result from those ideas are similar. And I've observed that a lot of companies spend way more time focused on the job skill fit than the cultural fit. And we have actually taken the opposite approach. We are much more concerned with, is this person a cultural fit and are they going to help us build the culture? And if they are great, we can teach somebody skills. I can't teach you to believe the same things that I believe. I can't change that. So i been throwing questions at you for the past hour. You've done a great job fielding them. Anything that you just want to talk about, anything that is near and dear to your heart that you want to use uh, the rest of our free flowing portion of this conversation sure. just to freestyle and, yeah. and to share knowledge. You know, I would be. I'm really passionate about the idea that business is actually the way to make affect change. I think we live in this um, pessimistic culture right now where everybody feels like the government is the reason for every problem and the government is the solution for every problem. And my observation, especially being a business owner and, you know, building businesses is that at the end of the day, it's the entrepreneurs that are making the change and it's just simple supply and demand. And 
you know, I, what I love the most about our business is we are challenging a status quo. We have a very strong belief that better for you food is what should be more prevalent in the world. And we're taking a chance and putting it out there and figuring out how to make that successful. And to me, that will result in the food ecosystem moving towards a better place over time. And I think that a lot of folks, and especially young people, I find they're so pessimistic about the future and they don't realize that the future is literally just a function of what you decide to make. And, you know, everything around us, the chairs, the lights, the road, the buildings, it was built by somebody. It was somebody had an idea and they said, you know what, I'm going to try, I'm going to do that. Right. And they tracked towards it and they did it. And I think with any change in society, I'm very optimistic about the future because I know lots of folks that are like myself and people that I work with in modern market that envision a better future and are tracking towards making that. Yeah. You know, there's this school of thought, or this is how I look at it. There's there's two ways to change something, right? It's with your culture, and it's with systems, processes, procedures, right? McDonald's is a great example of systems, processes, procedures, down to like the littlest, finest details. They control everything so it works, and that's what the government does, right? Systems, processes, procedures, control, regulations, uh, all these things. That that's what they're here to do to to control the situation. But culture can also control the situation, and I say it all the time, and I agree with you. There. Um, if we want to make change, it's not about creating more systems and regulations and processes. That's what the government will do. It's about changing the culture of of America, right? Like changing, sure. like what is our culture and where does it need to be? And we don't need systems and processes to change that. We just need to have better values. Um, I mean, did the government regulate that McDonald's start removing antibiotics from no. their meat? Yeah. You know, you know, no, they didn't. You know what happened is restaurants like us started serving antibiotic free food yeah. and you started seeing consumers being like, oh yeah, I'd rather eat that. And guess what happened? change happens. Yeah. And you know, you know, that's why I'm excited for resources like this podcasting in general, ideas and values are being transferred faster than ever before. People are sharing values and there are changes happening. And it's a really exciting time because of the resources like podcasts and blogs and, and vlogs and the, the information is there. There's no, there's no reason not to inform yourself and to be open-minded and, and to listen to people like you who have become successful and to share and listen to this type of knowledge, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really exciting time. So if you are a pessimist out there, uh, I'm, I just admitted to being a little bit of one when it, when it comes to scale and culture. But anyway, be open-minded and uh, know that you, you can make a difference, right? Absolutely. I think, I think everybody can. And I think that there's, a, there's this feeling sometimes that the problems are too big to make a dent on. And it, you know, a small business can turn into a giant one. You just have to make that, you know, take that leap. And, you know, if you have a restaurant and you want to make, you know, make your dent, you know, it's like Steve Jobs, I think it was always saying you want to leave a dent on the universe. And I think the neat thing about restaurants is they leave this dent in a community. You know, you, you actually directly impact somebody's life. So if you're an optimist and you're putting out, you know, optimistic food and services, that's going to rub off in your community and make the whole thing better. Beautiful. I've loved this conversation. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to bust out a fast speed round. All right. I have a question for you. How can an anonymous employee reporting program be a profit center for your restaurant? Hmm. Well, for starters, fraud alone represents a staggering loss to the restaurant industry with an estimated 40 billion in losses in the U.S. in 2017 alone. And this does not include the losses and costs associated with the more than 540,000 calls made to the U.S. EEOC in 2017, resulting in millions of dollars in penalties and legal costs for restaurant owners and investigators related to claims of harassment and discrimination. So do I have your attention? 
good because there's more. Employee tip-offs about misconduct continue to be the most common method for detection and prevention, but employees are often deterred from reporting their concerns directly to supervisors because they're afraid that there's going to be retaliation or they might lose their job or something, and I get it. But with Ethics Suites Anonymous and web-based restaurantethics.com, you can provide a safe, secure, simple, and anonymous communication channel between you and your employees to help protect your hard-earned reputation and assets. Go to ethicssuites.com slash restaurant unstoppable and you'll get three additional months so for the cost of 12 months you'll get 15 months or head over to the show notes and find the banner and you can use the link there if you listen to restaurant unstoppable i'm sure you've heard me say it before but i'll say it again there are two things that you need to let determine your growth the first thing that's people the second thing that's cash flow and we've got you covered on the cash flow part of things because i'm working with cashflowtool.com the ultimate cloud-based solution for your business cashflowtool.com is simple powerful and predictive it's simple because it requires no data entry it's always up to date and it works on any device anywhere it's powerful because with its built-in cash flow calendar activity feed and anomaly detector you instantly know all aspects of your cash flow with no surprises and it's predictive because you know your cash flow today and you can anticipate it tomorrow head over to www.cashflowtool.com unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and you'll receive pro features at the essential features price all right we're back and the first question i have for you is what is your it factor a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success uh grit Mm. um you know i i I really don't ever get slowed down (laughs) what is your biggest weakness uh disorganization what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process Uh, energy what is your biggest challenge today? Oh, that's a good one. There's a lot of big challenges. Um, the biggest challenge is making sure that we continue to scale our culture at the same rate we scale the rest of the business. Mm. And how are you doing that? Um, continuing to hire great people that manifest that culture, and they're really hard to find. All the good ones already have jobs. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a way to be, a way to act, core value. Um, the power of yes. And so, you know, how to, whatever a guest asks, you got to figure out how to come back at them with, yes, I can help you in some way. Um, you know, I think that's just necessary to be successful in a hospitality industry. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? Uncommon standard of service. I think, to be honest, we're more focused on how do we instill the hospitality you'd find in a full service restaurant in a limited service setting? I like it. And what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, there's so many, (laughs) um, there's a book called persuasion by Robert Caladini that is all about how you persuade people to your point of view and the psychology behind persuasion. And I think that, that applies much more in restaurants than most restaurateurs realize. Yeah. No, I, I think just culture in general and the human mind, human nature, biology is a, a vertical that restaurateurs should educate themselves on. Because at the end of the day, I think this industry is all about managing relationships and managing people. Absolutely. Right? And if you can figure that out, then you can conquer anything. Uh, what is one thing you believe restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? 
I don't think restaurateurs think enough about the impact that the food they're serving has on the guests' overall health and wellness. What is one piece of technology you've adopted within your four walls that has had a huge impact on operations? Uh, sticky chit printers. So the small printers that like Starbucks uses that print out the, um, the order, but then they have kind of a lightly sticky back so you can stick it on a to-go container or something. Um, they are, it, in my opinion, it's the best restaurant technology invented <laughs> in the last 15 years. Who produces years. that? Uh, there's a company I think called Sticky Paws, Sticky P-O-S. Sticky Paws. Yeah, and uh, they make this receipt paper that has this kind of lightly sticky post-it note back and it's game changing if you're doing lots of takeout. Nice, and I saw you're using uh, Par POS. Too. We are. Bring Par. Uh, there's, I'm seeing them come up more and more. What made you go with Par? Um, you know, they were one of the first cloud-based POS platforms that uh, seemed to solve some of the problems the large incumbents uh, with uh, Aloha and Micros had not solved, and so that's why we went with them. Can you give me an example of one of those things? Where? Um, so they were one of the first ones that truly eliminated the back of house computer and could run fully in an offline mode. So, you know, if you lost all internet to the restaurant, you could still transact business as usual. I also saw that you're using long, long range systems. Is that something you've implement, implemented in all of your locations? The yeah. tracker? Yeah, we, uh, we don't have the tracker in all locations, but we use their buzzers in some form or another in all locations. We've been working with them for, gosh, eight, eight of the nine years we've been in existence. No, and like I, I was hoping we'd have more time to dive into your, uh, being a, uh, an engineer, right, uh, in looking at systems and finding creative ways to uh, solve problems. But uh, we do have a hard yeah. stop, so i got to keep going. Uh, this is the last question. It's sure. a doozy. Are you ready for it? Uh, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom, three things you know to be true about your success that you could leave behind for the good of the industry, humanity, and for your legacy. What would those three things be? The three things you know to be true. Um, People need food that makes them feel good. One. That's number one. Um, the most the the people the people make the restaurant, and as a result, you have to make the restaurant comfortable for the people to be in. So mm. the goal of the restaurant is not just to serve the customer, but it's also to serve the team members as well. Um, and the third one, gosh, the third the, the third one would be. The industry is never going to change if you leave it to the incumbent. So if, if, all, if all you do is complain about the state of affairs and you don't actually go and try and fix it yourself, it will literally never change. The incumbents change because they're responding to what upstarts are doing. And so upstarts actually pushing the envelope and trying different things is actually how the industry will change and evolve over time. Not to be extremely cheesy and to end this conversation with a Gandhi quote, but be the change you want to see in the world, right? Absolutely. I love it. Um, This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Anthony. We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who's one independent or uh, smaller corporation that you admire and believe and make a great guest mentor on the show? Uh, Gosh, there's so many, but... Um, there's actually a guy in Boulder named Bobby Stuckey that runs a, a restaurant called Frosca. It's a James Beard award winning or award winning. He's a past guest on the show. Ah, he's been around. Yeah. yeah uh, so, anybody else you got on your um, list? Gosh, now you're stumping me because I had I had thought about him going <laughs> in. Um, he was a great interview. I can link to it in the show notes. Uh, he has a really awesome TED talk too. That, you know, have you ever talked to Scott Svensson at Mod Pizza? I had Maud Pizza on the show, but I think it was their old director of operations who's now not with them anymore. So, so I Scott's, the, the, Scott's the founder, and despite our us having a trademark disagreement oh, with him at, 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 at one point in the past, um, you know, I think Scott's a really inspirational guy and has a lot of 
experience in the industry with other concepts. He had a really successful coffee concept that he sold to Starbucks. And then um, I'm really impressed with what he's been able to build with Mod Pizza. You know, he's taken a relatively um, uh, staid and established category and, you know, been able to not only innovate within it, but they've been really innovated on the people front. And I'm really impressed with the people and the culture and the environment they've created. And, uh, you know, him and his wife are very much responsible for that. Yeah, I've heard great things about Mod. Scott, look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And let the folks at home know, uh, how can we connect? We want to come join your team. Or if we have any questions about today's conversation, yeah. is there a way to connect? Modernmarket.com. All right. Um, that's got everything on it. This is episode 576. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 576 for a summary of today's discussion. Uh, again, Anthony, just thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you. Man, what a great conversation. Thank you again, Anthony, for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge and a lot of takeaways from today's chat. I think the big takeaway, uh, there's two big takeaways for me. The first one is if we're going to see change in this industry, it's not a matter of bitching and, and moaning and squawking. It's about taking matters into our own hands and doing something about it. Capitalism is going to change the world. Uh, being an entrepreneur, taking action and uh, seeing opportunity and seeing the change you want to be or the change you want to see in the world than being that change, right? I think the other really big takeaway from today's conversation is starting with the end in mind. That's something that Anthony and his, and his partners have done really well from the, the very beginning. They knew they wanted to be a big company, uh, and they they knew about the change they wanted to make in the world, and they've and they painted that picture, right? And they everything that they do is working towards that goal to achieve their their end game, the end in mind, right? And every, like it's so important to to communicate that to to have that picture uh, framed out for everybody to see, and so you, it determines. The decisions you make, everything you do is based off of that long-term goal. So again, starting with the end in mind, huge lesson there. And just so many other great things came out of today's conversation. Too much to summarize all here. Uh, I hope you guys found value in today's chat. If you want more chats like this, reach out to me, Eric at restaurantstoppable.com. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me how I can best serve you. Uh, one of the ways I can best serve you is if you sign up for the email list and you you start getting involved in the dialogue. I'm sharing my thoughts. I'm sharing what I want to do, and I'm and I'm also getting your feedback. You can respond to those emails, and I am listening. So uh, join the conversation. Get involved. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com and find the pop-up. It won't it'll hit you right in the face. When you get that pop-up, just sign up for the email or scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page. You'll find the email there, too. And uh, keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. I don't even know if Stitcher Radio is that significant anymore, but... Honestly, if you're listening to this on any kind of platform and there is a way to rate and review a podcast on that platform, just do it. I'm sure it will help out with my rankings and just that feedback for me is invaluable. So I think that's all for today. Thank you guys so much for sticking around this long. Happy 2019. This is my last episode of 2018. And man, what a great year. Uh, awesome stuff. I got Brandon, my good friend, coming on t- real soon, uh, and he's going to kind of help me dissect what I've learned up to this point, so stay tuned for that. And uh, man, I'm excited for the future. I hope you guys are too. Until next time, peace out.